Preface of Elves and Heroes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Reese. Elves and Heroes by Donald A. McKenzie. Preface The Elves. The immemorial folk beliefs of our native land are passing away, but they still retain for us a poetic appeal not only on account of the glamour of early associations, but also because they afford us inviting glimpses of the mental habits and inherent characteristics of the men and women of past generations. When we retell the old tales of our ancestors, we sit beside them over the peat-fire, and as we glory with them in their strong heroes and share their elemental joys and fears, we breathe the palpitating air of that old mysterious world of theirs, peopled by spirits beautiful and strange and awe-inspiring. The attitude of the Gael towards the supernatural, and his general outlook upon life in times gone by, was not associated with unbroken gloom, nor was he always an ineffectual dreamer and melancholy fatalist. These attributes belong chiefly to the literary Celt of latter-day conception, the Celt of Arnold and Renan, and other writers following in their wake, who have woven misty impressions of a people whom they have met as strangers, and never really understood. Celtic literature is not a morbid literature. In Highland poetry there is more light than shadow, much symbolism, but no vagueness. Pictures are presented in minute detail. Stanzas are cunningly wrought in a spirit of keen artistry, and the literary style is direct and clear and comprehensible. In Highland folklore we find associated with the haunting fear of things invisible, common to all peoples in early stages of development, a confident feeling of security, inspired by the minute observances of ceremonial practices. We also note a distinct tendency to discriminate between spirits, some of which are invariably friendly, some merely picturesque, and perhaps fearsome, and others constantly harboring a desire to work evil upon mankind. Associated with belief in the efficacy of propitiatory offerings and ceremonies of riddance is the ethical suggestion that good wishes and good deeds influence spirits to perform acts of kindly intent. Of fairies the Highlanders spoke, as they are still prone to do in these districts where belief in them is not yet extinct, with no small degree of regard and affection. It may be that the good folk, and the peace people, Sitchin, were so called that good intention might be compelled by the conjuring influence of a name, as well as to avoid giving offense by uttering real names, as if it were desired to exercise a magical influence by their use. Be that as it may, it is evident from Highland folk tales that the fairies were oftener the friends than the foes of mankind. When men and women were lured to their dwellings, they rarely suffered injury. Indeed, the fairies appeared to have taken pleasure in their company. To such as the favored, they imparted the secrets of their skill in the arts of piping, of sword-making, etc. At sowing time or harvest, they were at the service of human friends. On the needy, they took pity. They never failed in a promise, they never forgot an act of kindness, which they invariably rewarded sevenfold. Against those who wronged them, they took speedy vengeance. It would appear that on these humanized spirits of his conception, the Highlander left, as one would expect him to do, the impress of his own character, his shrewdness and high sense of honor, his love of music and gaiety, his warmth of heart and love of comrades, and his indelible hatred of tyranny and wrong. The Highland wee folk are not so diminutive as the fairies of England, at least that type of fairy, beloved of the poet, which hovers bee-like over flowers and feeds on honeydew, 
power they had to shrink in stature and render themselves invisible, but they are invariably little people, from three to four feet high. It may be that the Gael's conception of humanized spirits may not have been uninfluenced by the traditions of that earlier diminutive race whose arrowheads of flint were so long regarded as elf-bolts. The fairies dwelt only in grassy knolls, on the summits of high hills, and inside cliffs. Although capable of living for several centuries, they were not immortal. They required food, and borrowed meal and cooking utensils from human beings, and always returned what they received on loan. They could be heard within the knolls grinding corn and working at their anvils, and they were adepts at spinning and weaving and harvesting. When they went on long journeys they became invisible, and were carried through the air on eddies of western wind. At the seasonal changes of the year, the wee folk were for several days on end inspired, like all other supernatural furies, with enmity against mankind. Their evil influences were negatived by spells and charms. We who still hang on our walls at Christmas, the mystic holly, are unconsciously perpetuating an old-world custom connected with the belief in the efficacy of the magical circle to protect us against evil spirits. And in our concern about luck, our proneness to believe in omens, the influence of colors and numbers, in dreams and in prophetic warnings, we retain as much of the spirit as the poetry of the religion of our remote ancestors. THE HEROES The heroes, with the exception of Cuchulain, who appears in this volume, figure in the tales and poems of the Oceanic or Fion cycle, which is common to Ireland and to Scotland. They have been neglected by our Scottish poets since Gavin Douglas and Barbour. In Ireland the Fians are a band of militia, the original Fenians. In Scotland the tales vary considerably, and belong to the hunting period before the introduction of agriculture. But in this country, as well as in Ireland, they are evidently influenced by historic happenings. There are tales of Norse conflicts, as well as tales of adventure among giants and spirits. The cycle had evidently remote beginnings. When we find Yarmid and Grian, like Paris and Helen, the cause of conflict and disaster, and Yarmid, like Achilles, charmed of body and vulnerable only on his heel-spot, we incline to the theory that, from a mid-European centre, migrating waves swept over prehistoric Greece, and left traces of their mythology and folklore in Homer, while other waves, sweeping northward, bequeathed to us as a literary inheritance the Celtic folk-tales, in which the deeds and magical attributes of remote tribal heroes and humanized deities are commingled and perpetuated. On fragments of these folk-tales the poet Macpherson reared his oceanic epic, in imitation of the Iliad and Paradise Lost. The Death of Cuchulain is a rendering in verse of an Irish prose translation of a fragment of the Cuchulain cycle, which moves in the Bronze Age period. Cuchulain, with the light of heroes on his forehead, is also reminiscent of Achilles. One of the few Cuchulain tales found in Scotland is that which relates his conflict with his son, and bears a striking similarity to the legend of Sorab and Rustam. Macpherson also drew from this cycle in composing his Ossian, and mingled it with the other, with which it has no connection. The third great Celtic cycle, the Arthurian, bears close resemblances, as Campbell of the West Highland Tales has shown, to the Fian cycle, and had evidently a common origin. Its value as a source of literary inspiration has been fully appreciated, but the Fian and Cuchulain cycles still await, like virgin soil, to yield an abundant harvest for the poets of the future. Notes on the folk beliefs and tales will be found at the end of this volume. Some of the short poems have appeared in the Glasgow Herald and Inverness Courier. The three tales appeared in the Celtic Review. 
End of preface. Recording by Matthew Reese. Davenport, Iowa.